Hello and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, triathlete, award-winning rally driver and motoring journalist, Jesse Billington. And I'm joined this evening by my excellent co-host, motorsports reporter and graphic designer, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you this evening? Uh, I'm good, thank you. It's been a quiet weekend for me, uh, which is the first weekend of... I can't remember when I didn't. We were meant to go to... uh, Castle Coombe to see some of their autumn racing but unfortunately dad was ill so we didn't go so it was a quiet weekend instead how are you not too bad just about recovered from my very full-on weekend um triathlon on Sunday so woke up at god awful o'clock to watch the Japanese Grand Prix while watching it ate breakfast and got dressed in a silly little sort of leotard thing to go and do a triathlon. So that was fun. Did that on a Sunday morning, a sprint triathlon. Um, so my legs still feel quite heavy. I slept like a log last night, but otherwise all, all is good. I feel proud that I've done it. Another thing to cross off the list of things achieved this year, if it, if it, even if it was exhausting. Like Lincolnshire is very flat, but it does come with the other problem of everything is then a headwind. Because there is, there is it, somehow cycling in a big circle around Lincolnshire, somehow all the way around it's still a headwind. So that was that was a, an arduous twenty four kilometres. And there's no downhill section either. There's no downhill section, but there's no uphill either. So you don't really yeah. miss out in that regard. But yeah, it's just how is all of it a headwind? But yeah, still, I've done a triathlon now. I can say I've done a triathlon and call myself a triathlete to a certain extent whilst I spent the whole of yesterday in bed. It was an early start. I think the additional rest is well-deserved. Yeah, I went down. I actually went downstairs to watch the race. Immediately after fell asleep on the sofa, woke up, went to bed. Mm. Fair enough. So actually, yeah, the most time I spent downstairs was to just watch the Grand Prix. And then that was... (laughs) Fair enough. I mean, it was an interesting enough Grand Prix and we'll, we'll certainly dive into it. In fact, with that in mind, um, we'll launch into all the action from this weekend's Japanese Grand Prix and we'll take a look at some of the news that's come out in the world of Formula One and indeed motorsports more broadly reaching. Um, so we'll kick off with McLaren and um, we've obviously heard they've signed Oscar Piastri for a longer contract. He's signed on till 2026, but they've also made another signing and this is when it comes to... Um, their reserve driver, they've signed Ryo Hirakawa as their 2024 reserve driver. He won the World Endurance Championship in 2022 for Toyota Gazoo Racing, including a 24 Hours of Le Mans win that year. And he will remain racing in the WEC series alongside his McLaren duties. So that's, that's an interesting little sign. And it's a driver from a different pool than what we're expecting. I think this is possibly a fallout from some of the IndyCar issues we've seen in the previous weeks with the likes of Pato Award and Alex Palou um, sort of shuffling around to different locations. Certainly um, Alex Palou off the back of winning this year's championship, I think I'm correct in saying that, um, has had reservations about signing to, uh, what is it, like Shadow McLaren, aren't they, in um, IndyCar? So there's... He's also crucially quite young, isn't he? And I mean, they came... Toyota came second this year in WEC as well. Um, Here, it was him himself, wasn't it? That's it is him, wasn't it? That span out um, with a few 
with not long to go when he was chasing down sort of Ferrari. What this year? Yes, I think so. Uh, he's twenty nine at the moment, so not ancient. No, I thought he was quite. Considered. I thought he was younger than that, just because they said they were saying how they wouldn't have put someone so young in the last stint of Le Mans. They would have put one of the other two more experienced. Was it um, Sebastian Buemi and Brendan Hartley, his teammates? Yes, yeah, Buemi and Hartley. Interesting enough, Ian Skelton, who you've met, photographer, he was yeah. shooting for them over that weekend. Huh. Um, bum, 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 bum. Trying to flick back through the details. Um, bum, bum, bum. He was indeed yeah, racing for Toyota Gazoo Racing. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, there was some sort of an incident, according to the sort of brief race rundown I managed to pull up in front of me, that suggests that there was some sort of an issue with um, uh, Hirokawa's car, and they sort of suffered a bit of an incident in the final stint, as it were. So, um, yeah. But regardless, he's still a very good driver and has a fantastic track record outside of endurance racing. And this year, overall in the WEC championships, they've Toyota has, or is currently leading the championship. So that's not too shabby. Um, and they won last year as well. And prior to that, he'd had a fairly middling sort of stint dipping in and out of LMP2 drives and all other bits and pieces and a bit of Super GT. He won Super GT in 2017 and won Super Formula last... No, came third in Super Formula last year. So he's got a good racing record behind him. And equally, is some uh, second place and a third place overall in Super Formula over a couple of seasons, which is proving to be a series that's worth getting your toe into if Liam Lawson's anything to go by. So possibly a smart signing, just as one guy to have on the back burner, especially if IndyCar is looking to get more and more tempestuous as the driver market shuffles around there and McLaren have essentially all of their um, backup drivers come from there but I think they also have Mick Schumacher as a possibility if they need a reserve driver in him like they have so many drivers they can pull on because of their Mercedes engine they just go you or you or you or you get in the car yeah it sort of saves their back a bit doesn't it Um, because even if they did rely on Mercedes drivers. Isn't Stoffel Van Dorn also um got a WEC drive this year? Uh I feel like he has, yeah. Not this year, next year rather. Yes, yeah, going into next year, yeah. Um I don't know who else McLaren has then as their reserve drivers. McLaren reserve This is what happens when Timo writes in notes and doesn't and puts in stories but is never actually here to back them up um equally sam bird used to be a mercedes reserve driver back in michael schumacher days so they could equally get him on the roster as well seeing as he's now their formula their e family. driver which was only announced yeah. recently as well so here we go mclaren's reserve drivers for this season uh they have alex Pelot and mick schumacher and Filippo drogovic and stoffel van dorn felipe and stoffel were only for the first 15 races of the season then when it comes to test and development drivers they have will stevens and oliver turvey so it's likely that what they've done with rio is they've got him in to replace alex Pelot, who is no longer going to be sort of representing mclaren with his indycar um seat so that's smart. They've got all these sort of backup options. Um, 
be interesting to see how it plays out for them, if at all it does. But speaking of reserve drivers, um, that's what Liam Lawson has been confirmed as for Red Bull and Alpha Tauri for 2024, as Alpha Tauri confirms that Yuki Tsunoda and Daniel Ricciardo will drive for them next year. Yeah, it's it's obviously hard to judge whether Daniel Ricciardo is the right decision for this, as we've only seen him race for two weekends so far. Yuki Tsunoda was obviously doing a far better job than Nick DeVries, but for the races Yuki has actually taken part in with Lawson as his teammate, those being the Netherlands and Japan, Lawson has finished ahead of him. So are AlphaTauri making the right decision here and retaining Tsunoda and not replacing him with Lawson? It's For me, it's one of those things that Yuki Tsunoda is neither a poor nor exceptional driver. AlphaTauri, I think, have been very patient with him, but they this is his third year now. And as much as I like him, we haven't seen much from him. Yeah, this is the interesting argument, is we haven't seen anything spectacular from Yuki. He's had a couple of P4s, scored points on his debut when he first joined. I think he was P4 behind the podium in Abu Dhabi 21, which is quite interesting. Um, but yeah, just sort of a, a mixed sort of career at this point. But equally, he's in a fairly mixed chassis. It's come and gone from under him. It's been developed for teammates. I think the the main concern that people have is whether Daniel Ricciardo was the right signing. But when you look at the fact that that is a chassis that needs development, Daniel Ricciardo is the smart choice to put into that seat because he has the experience and therefore the ability, by and large, to develop a car. So while people go, oh, they've just stuck him in because he's big numbers and he's got more Instagram followers and so on, no, they've stuck him in because what that team needs is a driver that understands Formula One, understands how a team works and understands how to build the car. And that is what Daniel Ricciardo is. This is the same argument we had with why Alfa Romeo retained Bottas as they transitioned to becoming Sauber. They still need someone who knows what the hell's going on. And I think Daniel Ricciardo is going to be expected to be able to perform in that same way. This is possibly one of the reasons why they were quick to replace Nick DeVries was because it meant they could get Daniel Ricciardo in, get him experienced with the chassis, so he knew what needed developing first and what to look at. It sort of gave him that run-up into the 2024 season and 2025 especially. So if you're Lawson, it's a bit of a kicker. You are on retention. You are still getting a paycheck. You're not exactly going to be racing. You might do Super Formula for another season. You might go and do DTM. You might get posted into a WEC position just to be doing something and staying active. But if you do end up in the Alpha Tauri seat in 2025, whatever the team's called by then, you'll know that it would have been developed well. It will have been developed closer with Red Bull and you're ultimately going to have a better time of it. You'll probably be sat next to Ayumi Wasa, I should think, at that point, or maybe someone else from Formula 2 that's got a Red Bull type, but that's like 11 billion people at this point in time. So at the end of the day, it's not a terrible bargain for Lawson, and there is some sense to what they've done. The question is whether they were right to retain Sonoda. I think ultimately, I think he's only on a one-year contract now, Sonoda, essentially, until Aston Martin um, bring him in with their Honda deal. I think that's the way it's lining up to go. I think as well, if if anything, this year's um, to go by, if, say, one of the two drivers really outperforms the other, they are not scared to get rid of the, that driver and they can bring in Lawson and know that he could probably do the job. The, yeah, that is a very good point to it as well, is the fact that Alpha, Tauri, Toro Rosso, Red Bull are not afraid to go 
you two swap. One of you's on the sidelines, one of you's back in the car. And ultimately, I think if it's for the better of the team, I can't see there being any reason to not make that sort of decision, the same as they did with Nick DeVries. And yeah, at the end of the day, Liam Lawson could find himself at the halfway point of the F1 season, getting back into an F1 car. And again, this depends hugely on how Perez performs in the Red Bull seat through the first half of next year, because while he will be racing for Red Bull next year, might not be for the entirety of the season, especially if his performance from the past two races is anything to go by. So Danny Rick could move up. It's unlikely they want to put Perez into the Alpha Towery. So just replace him with Lawson, I suppose. The pressure is now yeah. coming on to Perez from weirdly both Danny Ricardo and Liam Lawson, because Red Bull now knows that if they do put Ricardo somewhere else, they know they've got someone talented to replace Ricardo. So it's, it's an interesting one there. Um, speaking of not necessarily replacements, but rejections, um, the FIA has rejected applications from Hitech, Rodan Carlin, and I think that's I the no one idea. from. I think that's the one from one of the stands that was sort of a bit of a left field choice to enter um, Formula One. Anyway, these are the three teams, two of which are familiar to Formula Two and Formula Three listeners. Um, that have applied to become Formula One teams. Snutz um, has also been denied access, but Andretti, however, has not. Its application is still pending. So we'll wait and see what happens there, but it's promising stuff. And there has been more and more positive chatter coming from the F1 paddock about the arrival of Andretti and possibly the arrival of the new power unit supplier. I think it was Zach Brown that said he's not really concerned about it and says that, look, Healthy competition is healthy competition, and I don't think it's going to detract anything from the sport. So that's positive stuff. Yeah, it's and as well, whenever you hear sort of the rumours, Andretti's always sort of been the one that's been the most serious, or the teams are taking the most serious as well. Whilst all the others, you don't really hear sort of too much about them. I think it was always going to be if one team joined, it was going to be Andretti. Yeah, I think certainly the established Formula Two um, sort of teams had an outside chance because they know how the sport works. They followed it round. They know exactly how it goes. Um, but at the end of the day, yeah, they weren't. They aren't. They aren't Andretti. They aren't the big name, and people know Andretti from IndyCar, so which has a huge fan base. I think it's it's tricky to sort of become quite insular with Formula One and forget that how big IndyCar is in America, and equally how big IndyCar has now become outside of America as well. I think I'm right in saying that IndyCar might even have more a larger fan base than Formula One. Um, I know that NASCAR certainly does. So it's, you've got to try and forget about being so insular and looking just purely within your own sport for these new names. And that's where Andretti really comes in because, yeah, it's a heritage name from Formula One, but also it's a big name and big engineering from America. And you've got to look at the big impact Formula One's trying to have in America at the moment. Admittedly, that impact is not going the way they might want it to. If you've kept abreast of any of the developments in Las Vegas, it's upsetting a lot of residents and has also very sadly taken the life of a construction worker earlier this week. Um, they were rushing to build one of the grandstand sets along the strip and there was an engineering disaster, I want to say, some sort of collapse. And unfortunately, it took the life of one of the construction workers, which 
people are framing this as being F1's problem. I don't think so. This uh, Las Vegas was announced quite some time ago, and this is down to Las Vegas for not getting its ducks in a row. It would have been easy for F1 to pull the, pull the plug and go, nope, we'll come next year. If you're not ready, tough. You're not getting the money. We're taking the money we've given you. We'll be back next year. Do it properly. And the other argument is that America and Las Vegas are two inordinately wealthy locations. You compare that to Monaco, where they have to construct a grade-listed Formula One circuit around historic streets, where the limitations are so much finer, in a short period of time that does not impact what is essentially a residential area. Las Vegas is a tourist hub that serves only to cater tourists. This is like expecting someone to build a Formula One circuit in a center parks. Oh, you can't do that. Why? It will disrupt all the tourists. It's going to bring in tourists, ignore them for a few minutes while we build the F1 circuit. It'll be fine. Something has gone horrendously wrong with the planning here. And I think that it needs to be remembered that this is Las Vegas' fault at this point, not Formula One's. This is a failing of the Las Vegas Formula One hosting committee, not the sport itself. But that's by the by. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on it. Um, no, I sort of agree with what you said. They just, I don't think they realised what a big task it was. I guess maybe perhaps the issue is that they looked at something like Monaco and thought, oh, well, they can put put it up within sort of a matter of weeks, really, isn't it? Mm. But they didn't realise how much of sort of the F1 infrastructure is already ingrained within Monaco, you know, the roads were already ready with the correct kind of tarmac. Las Vegas wasn't, and it's been a huge job to try and get that already. And I don't think they really realised that. Yeah, Monaco repaves way ahead of time. And also the teams that set up in Monaco have been setting up there for years now. And... They will they'll have like a finessed routine of how to do it with minimal impact and how to do it promptly and quickly and safely. So it's easy to look at the best in the class and go, oh, how hard can it be? Answer, very hard. And unfortunately, in this instance, poor planning and has led to, uh, it's, it's the old adage of piss poor, piss poor planning leads to piss poor performance. And ultimately, that's taken someone's life in this instance. And I don't think that's entirely excusable. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when we do arrive in Vegas in a few weeks because historically it's never been good the circuit it's always been sort of falling apart and strung together out of cones and rope at the last minute we might see a return of that style of Las Vegas circuit which would be funny I think that there's been all this fanfare unfortunately it won't bring the the season that came with the Las Vegas Grand Prix, what was that, 1982-83, Keke Rosberg? Yeah, Keke Rosberg winning with one race win in the season yeah. and all manner of interesting sort of podium sitters. I think we had, um, oh, Italian driver Giacomo something or other um, had his only podium there for Alfa Romeo back in the 80s. It was all kinds of crazy. Um, but anyway, that's 
That's the news outside of the Japanese Grand Prix. We'll shuffle into what actually happened at the Japanese Grand Prix. And prior to the race start, things were already kicking off. And Logan Sargent had, before even starting the race, acquired a penalty. The team used too many new replacement parts while rebuilding his car after his impact with the barriers in Q1. So the technical delegation from Formula One deemed it to be a third car. And Logan was given a 10-second penalty to serve during the race. He was also required to start from the pit lane due to changes being made in Parc Ferme. As everyone surely knows at this point, spoiler alert if you don't, Verstappen romps home to a clear-cut victory after Perez flails around to sum up the race in one sentence. Early contact in the field as the pack gets off the line shuffles the midfield order around. From there, the high-degradation circuit forces teams into two- and three-stop strategies. George Russell is the only one to make just a sole pit stop. Bottas is the first in the field to retire. He picked up early damage after being herded into Alex Albon off the start. The debris off this incident impacted a slow starting Sergio Perez too, but we'll get to him in due course. Bottas continued to race, but after the safety car restart, Sargent locked up on the entry to turn the turn 11 hairpin and torpedoed Bottas, sending the fin spinning into the gravel. This wounded his Alfa Romeo further and he retired with damage. This earned Logan a further five-second penalty to his 10-second one he already had for having a third car. Perez was the next driver to retire. For the first time, he ploughed uh, for the for the first time, crucially, he ploughed on at the hairpin and wiped out Magnussen in a clumsy move from way too far back. The same move he pulled on Albon in Singapore, essentially, lunging from an absolute distance away and just ploughing into someone's side pod. Where have we seen that before? Uh, given that they'd handed Logan a penalty for that same move a lap or two prior, Perez was given a five-second penalty and was complaining of the car being tricky to drive, so he retired. Stroll retired next with what's recorded as a rear wing failure. Aston Martin might have been caught out by the TD-018, the technical directive number 18, that was introduced in Singapore, and given how low down Lance is, it's not out of the question that he was running a different style of wing, likely a new style of construction and composition as opposed to actual design and aerodynamic impact. This might have proven too brittle and failed. In the official release from the team, they said they noticed an issue with the wing and opted to retire Lance. Teams are running sensors on their rear wings to check for flexion. So... If you don't know how this all works, the way that I've sort of figured out to explain it is if you take one of those old flexi rulers everyone used to have at school, like the big wobbly ones, and if you took like a standard plastic one that your teacher gave you because you forgot your pencil case or your ruler, if you flex the flexi one, obviously it flexes and continues doing that all day long. If you try and flex the sort of clear plastic one, it flexes a little bit, but it has a limit as to how far it will flex. And eventually that will lead to a structural failure. I think what might have happened here is Aston Martin, in a bid to avoid being caught out by the new technical directive, have accidentally made a slightly more brittle wing. Yes, it doesn't flex as much, but equally it can't sustain that same load that the flexi one was able to. So they retired Lance when they saw the sensor was going a bit haywire and likely suggesting the wing was about to fail. The question I have for you, though, Ellie May, is at this point, would you retire him for the season and put Felipe in the car? So before I make my, or give my opinion, I do, whilst he is not here with us. We should I have mentioned have, in absentia, yeah, Timo is yeah. not here. Timo is not here, but I do have his views. I unfortunately can't do a male voice. You should try. So <laughs> I'm not going to. Try sounding really, really cocksure about it, and that way you'll come off perfectly as Timo. I don't know. I did, I, maybe I should have like practiced beforehand. I'm not sure I can go sort of 
his voice isn't necessarily necessarily low. It's just hard to do if you're a woman. Mm. It's not a womanly voice. No. Um. So Timo has said Aston Martin should bin him off. His mannerisms and attitude in the pen afterwards were a bit. I think that's going to be abysmal from a sponsor's point of view. Um, they should embed Drogovic there as quickly as possible so he doesn't scamper off somewhere else, but they won't. My opinion is, I mean, the retirement wasn't his fault. So from that point of view, no. But from his performance this season, yes. I mean, Aston Martin was second in the championship at the start of the year. And whilst their performance has decreased as the year has gone on, I don't think they could have kept second with how the latter part of the season has gone. But they should have been able to at least been in a position where they could have at least fought for third. But now there's no way they can fight for that position against Ferrari. And now they're in a position where they're about to potentially lose fourth in the constructors to McLaren. And that's down to Lance Stroll's performance. I mean, there's 49 points between the two teams and McLaren picked up 33 points in Japan. There are six races left. I don't think it's going to take a lot for McLaren to overtake them. And from Stroll's point of view, he has 47 points. Fernando Alonso has 174. Piastri, a rookie, has 10 more points than Lance Stroll. Uh, in the driver's standing, and Stroll is on the cusp of leaving the top 10 because Gasly is only one point behind him in 11th. When Stroll is struggling to stay within the top 10 of the driver's championship and Fernando Alonso is fourth, there is no other person to blame other than Lance Stroll. Yeah, when you look at his performance against the rest of the field and certainly in comparison to his teammate, there is no excuse for it at this point in time. You have not done well enough. And if this was any other driver at any other team, if this was a driver at, say, Ferrari or at Red Bull or at Mercedes that was had such a dissonance in performance to their teammate, they would have been binned off so fast and we saw that with Nick DeVries at Alpha Tauri where the points difference wasn't even that big and the on-track pace wasn't really that big either but Red Bull and Alpha Tauri were quick to sort of make the cut make the swap and get him out of there so if this was any other constructor this would have happened months ago easily we would have seen a completely different person in that Aston Martin seat and the only reason it's not happened is because Everyone's too afraid to fire the boss's son. But the boss's son is now bored of the job. He doesn't want it. He's He hates being there and he hates being dragged around to do this. He wants to be off playing tennis and doing something else. He's seen other drivers leave the sport and go and do interesting things like go off and do business and just focus on actually having an entertaining time. Sebastian Vettel, Nick DeVries and um, the GOAT himself, Nicholas Latifi, they've all gone off and found other things to do beyond Formula One. That life exists. And he's seen it and gone, yeah, why not? But I think I think this yeah, definitely comes from a level of dejection from him. Like the camera cut to him when he was in the pit box or in his pit garage 
having gotten out of the car after retiring and he seemed nonplussed. Like if any other driver had had to retire from that race because of a rear wing failure, they'd been throwing gloves around. They would have been swearing. They would have looked upset about it. He didn't even seem the slightest bit dejected. He, he just looked like he was happy to get the rest of his afternoon back. That says it all at this point. And you've got the incredible talent that's proven to be Felipe Drogovic sitting there waiting for a chance to do something this season. And you're frittering it away. It, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said for, I think Timo is right to raise Lance's behaviour because while, yeah, it doesn't look great from a sponsor's point of view, that is a hugely telling thing as to whether a driver wants to be driving or not. And equally, the pressure he's under. We, it, last year's car was not great which meant that the gap between him and Seb was relatively small. But now Aston Martin have put in some time and money into developing the car and it's gotten good. All of a sudden, you can see where that distance comes from. And yeah. There's over 100 points between the two drivers. Yeah. That's a solid four race wins. Plus some. Yeah. It's he's over um, like a quarter of uh, not even a quarter of Alonso's points isn't it I think that's the way the maths works out yeah well, Charles 47 Alonso 174 so 47 times 4 yeah it's not quite a quarter but it's getting on for that way and yeah at one point Alonso was fighting for third in the driver's standings and you're fighting to stay in the top half of the field against a rookie and the Alpines it's not a good look. Um, anyway, moving on from Lance Stroll, we'll move to a different L and uh, certainly an L for Logan Sargent, who retired on lap 22 with more collision damage, his car getting worse as it went on. Alex Albon followed him into the pits four laps later for the same reason, suffering some broken bits and pieces from that early race damage with Bottas. Around this point, Sergio Perez unretired. Uh, Re-entering the race, he ran an outlap and then immediately boxed, served his five-second penalty for shunting Kevin, then left the pits post-pit um, post stop and penalty and immediately retired again. This counted as him having served his penalty and would thus prevent it being handed down to him in Qatar as a grid penalty. The FIA has since closed this loophole. It was perfectly legal and did accordance with the rules to pull this off. But ultimately, it's meant that it's offered no punishment to either the driver or the team for bad driving and unsportsmanlike behaviour. So do we think the FIA has learned to close loopholes to prevent the backlash that we've seen partly from this race? If you spent any time on social media afterwards, you've seen people going, how is it fair that he's gotten to do that? He's basically gotten away with this scot-free. And equally, post-2021, we saw an interesting loophole exploited there through an interpretation of the rules. Are we seeing an FIA that's growing more and more concerned with ensuring the sport is watertight when it comes to interpretation and understanding of the rules? Um, so Timo has simply just said FIA hasn't learned. I have a little bit more to say than just three words. Um, I mean, the problem is until a team finds the loophole where the words of the regulations could be interpreted differently, the FIA probably don't know there is one. I mean, these regulations, I imagine, have been written by very high-paid lawyers, but no matter how hard the FIA and these lawyers try, they're not going to be able to cover every single scenario and the wording or lack of wording in the regulations will always be subject to interpretation. And I think in this scenario as well, because it hasn't really happened before, there's no precedent to go off. So I think 
it is a bit unfair to give them backlash over it. I mean, if you compare it to sort of, I don't know, any country, like say UK law, for instance, not everything has been written down in statute and comes from, you know, sort of the government. Um, those that have, it's down to the judges and the court to interpret the wording of, but anything new and doesn't have any law covering it, the court will determine and set a precedent for future cases. So, you know, you, you probably find in, in most countries, not everything is written down in law, and you're going to find that the case in F1. Not everything is going to be written down and set in the regulations. I think it's a bit unfair to say the FIA must have every single scenario written down and know what to do in every single scenario. You know, what were the chances of this happening? Usually if a car retires, it's because the car can no longer go on. You don't usually be like, well, actually, the car might be able to go on for a couple more laps. Can we come back in? Yeah, this was a voluntary retirement. This is the key thing to remember here is it was a voluntary retirement because the 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 car was deemed undrivable. There was no point in leaving Perez out there to flail around and risk damaging the car more, necessitating, necessitate, necessitating having to make more parts for later on in the season in a cost gap era. There's no point in essentially wasting money. So the car was voluntarily retired in a working condition. It hadn't been meatball flagged. It hadn't been black flagged for being unsafe on track. It wasn't leaking fluid. It wasn't causing risk to other drivers. The car itself wasn't. The driver was, but that's purely opinion. Um so yeah, the car was per in a perfectly legal state to head out. There was no reason for the car to be officially retired. So hence the reason why it's weirdly classified as a 45 minute long pit stop is because he pulled in, they retired the car and set back out again. This is something we sort of saw way back in the early years of the sport when mechanical issues were more and more prevalent and races were essentially shorter you had a greater chance of catching up to the pack in older races because of the spread of the field and the performance difference across the field you could retire your car uh, fix the problem and then head back out several laps later and still stand a decent chance of catching up to the rest of the field you were unlikely to win but because of the retirements you might at least get bumped up the order so there's every reason to that this hadn't been addressed before like you said because it hadn't been tackled before there was no sort of pre-standing as to how this was dealt with. So in the end of end of it, Red Bulls went, the car's still safe, right? Yeah. So let's go and serve that five-second penalty now. Can we do that? Is there anything that says we can't put the car back out if the car is safe to run? No, there's nothing to say we can't do it. What's the worst that happens? We serve a penalty at the next race. We're doing that anyway. It's very clever. Yeah, it is. And ultimately, that's what you watch the sport for, is to see what a lot of clever people can do when they're asked to make a racing team, not just a racing car, but a team. And at the end of the day, Formula One is a team sport. And a part of that team is dedicated to understanding the rules and finding the way of building the fastest car and covering 300 kilometers in the fastest time possible. Ultimately, the team was thinking with the broader picture of looking at the next event where they would have to try and cover the same 300 kilometers, but without as five seconds added to that. I love it how Max Verstappen must have just been doing such a great job out there, but they had nothing to worry about 
other than sort of looking at Perez and thinking, like someone must have sort of turned around and been like, we haven't served our penalty, just will we have to the next race? And then sort of looking through the regulations and thinking, hmm, can we just put him back in the race to serve the penalty? Yeah, what if we just simply serve that penalty now? Like the, the team has the, obviously at that point had the spare capacity to go and do that. They're like, I guess for a few minutes we can leave Max to sort of look after himself while we sort out his teammate, I guess, and go from there. I'm like, oh, that's it's it's just fascinating that they're able to operate at that level. But equally, that's what you watch the sport for is to see teams come together that can perform that sort of thing. And I, I like the way you sort of brought the actual sort of existence of law into it and the way that something has to happen for you to go, oh, yeah, yeah that shouldn't happen. We'll make a law to stop that. And that's that's literally the application of loopholes in everyday life. Like a loophole happens and you go, probably shouldn't be allowed to get away with that. We'll close it. I think, yeah, the well, FIA has learned. Yeah, it's like there isn't a written law to say you can't murder someone. There's no, no you can't you can't look into any UK law or statute and say there is nothing spe- specifically to say in writing you cannot murder someone. It's the present we've got from someone murdering someone and someone going, yeah, you shouldn't be able to do that. Yeah, you shouldn't just be able to go about and do that sort of thing. And yeah, yeah, it's the interesting way in which law is sort of founded and equally the way that we construct rules based off of a similar set of morals. Um, But anyway, before we get too sort of philosophical about it, um, basically Perez managed to unretire himself sort out his penalty, so he's going into Qatar completely scot-free, despite having now obliterated several cars in the span of two races. His form has been atrocious, and we will mention this later. Um, the Mercedes pair battled throughout the race on their vastly split strategies, with the two seemingly at odds come race end about swapping orders, um, swapping orders, so yeah, swapping the order of them to protect from sides behind. In the end, Mercedes made the call to swap and Russell was quickly eaten up by the Spaniard. So would you have swapped Mercedes if you're in that point? Timo's view is he would have swapped them around, but maybe sooner, so Hamilton had more of a chance to get after Leclerc. Russell was already in damage control anyway for his race and couldn't be helped by Hamilton. I have kind of gone the opposite and said I wouldn't have swapped them around because Hamilton had the stronger car to fight signs and potentially keep him behind. He could get the better exit out of the last corner to defend down the only DRS section, down the start, finish straight. And if you're going to swap them, then why do the tactic of giving George DRS afterwards? You know, what, what was the point? And I think you saw earlier in the race that Leclerc, whilst he did get past Russell, he didn't do it easily. So I think with the tyre that had sort of a younger lifespan than Russell's, which obviously Hamilton did. I think Sainz may may have struggled to get ahead of them. I think it was strange. I guess the only reason I can see them doing it is they were trying to save their back in that if Sainz did get Hamilton, he was definitely going to get Russell. So then they would have both, um, so they would finish with both Ferraris ahead of them rather than just Leclerc ahead of Hamilton. Yeah, I think there was... There was some element of sort of skate saving the sort of skin on their own back. And 
I think ultimately I I would have done what they did, I think, because at that point, Russell is becoming a sitting duck as each lap goes past. Those tyres are dying. And I think equally the pace deficit he had to Hamilton meant that there was no chance that at that point, if he was going to keep towing Hamilton along, he was actually going to start slowing Hamilton up and making Hamilton susceptible to the Ferrari behind. The Ferrari was a quicker car than the Mercedes on average, I think, across this weekend. George put up a fight and was lucky to get the inside line against Charles going through sort of turn one, two. But on average, I think Sainz had the measure of them. And had they not swapped, I reckon Sainz would have gotten Hamilton. So it was a wise move to do. I would have, yeah, like you said, possibly done it earlier to give Hamilton a chance to chase down Leclerc ahead. So, yeah, swings and roundabouts with that one. But when it comes to swapping cars, the Alpines also tried the same thing, but with the ambition to catch Alonso. Gasly reckoned to be faster, so was allowed past Ocon, but failed to make an indent into the Spaniard ahead of him, and the two were swapped back. However, what this did do was cost Gasly a point overall and 10th place in the standings, which would have tied him on points with Lance Stroll, but on countback, Gasly's third place at the Dutch Grand Prix would outrank the Canadian's best finish of fourth in Australia. So had Alpine not swapped them back, while Ocon was already was already ahead of uh, Gasly in the standings, I believe I'm correct in saying, pulls up a big list of where the drivers are. Yes, um, it is. Ocon yeah. is 12. Um, Ocon is, no, Ocon's behind. Yeah, so what this would have done, but Ocon has such a point deficit at this point that he wouldn't have caught him. That's the thing. So Ocon's on 38 points. Uh, Gasly's on 46 and Stroll is on 47 had they not swapped Ocon would by no means going to have caught Gasly by swapping them but it would have meant that Gasly could have caught Stroll and just clawed back at, at that and puts um, which would have puts uh, Gasly into the top 10 which is feels like something that maybe Alpine overlooked in the heat of the moment in trying to keep tensions out of the team it's a team we know where they've been constantly monitoring and managing tension between the two drivers so i think where they said look we will swap you if you cannot you will we will swap back i think that was the agreement they had to work on gasly was hoping he would be able to steam away from Ocon and thus cling on to that extra point over his teammate and therefore sort of knowingly catch stroll in the standings i think he went into the race knowing that if he could do that he would catch stroll this weekend and could then also set off after Piastri, who I believe is ahead of them points-wise. But um, it's a long charge to Piastri now, who's on 57 points to Gasly's 56. So there's still 10 points to hunt down there. I think it's strange the reaction we got from Gasly afterwards. He was very angry about it all. I think because if you think that Ocon let him by and he didn't get that, he didn't get Alonso, then it's fair that they swapped that back. And I can't, you know, there's rumours that maybe it's because the strategy calls ended up hindering Gasly and putting him behind Ocon, but again, they were on two, especially early on, they were on two very different strategies because Ocon obviously had damage, had to pit I believe, and then changed. That's when they changed his tires, and you know, Ocon was down at the bottom at one point. So to end up getting both drivers into the points was actually kind of quite some feat to do. 
and I just, I can't really understand where why we got such an angry reaction from Gasly. I think it is because I think possibly at that point Gasly was just thinking purely about his own outcome of this and didn't want to lose that one point. I think he just didn't want to lose that one critical point. And equally, at the end of the day, when it's still tight points-wise in that part of the driver's standings, one point does go a long way. He'll get it. He'll get it at some point, ultimately. But I think with F1 drivers, you've got to remember that they they only think about the here and now some, some, a lot of the time. And they want that point now. They don't want it at the next race because they might not get it at the next race. And it's the Alpine. So chances are they won't get it at the next race. <laughs> there's, there's a bigger picture that I think you might have been thinking of while also comparing the here and now. It's an interesting one. Anyway, um, the rest of the race we'll certainly get into with our winners and spinners. And we'll start with he who is not present for his winner. Uh, He has gone for Piastri. Uh, He says he should have been second, but played the team game and was once again very impressive. Hopefully wins a Grand Prix before Norris does. He... What did he say? He should have been second, but he played the team game. Yes. No, he's wrong. Yeah, because Norris was just quicker. Norris was quicker. Yeah. This, this yeah. is why I picked Norris as my winner, because I think Piastri, credit to him, going into the first turn, and he was quicker in qualifying, he got that P2, and then going into turn one and challenging Verstappen, especially when Verstappen got a good start. At Silverstone, it was different because Verstappen didn't get away quite so well. But this time round, Verstappen got off the line, which is tricky with that Red Bull. It does not like setting off, and it never has done. I know it's always struggled with getting off the line. Um, Piastri sort of went a bit too bold, challenging there, losing out on getting that inside line to Verstappen, which opened the door for Norris to just swoop around the outside. And basically, Piastri gave that away within the first four turns of the Grand Prix. Norris also had the better start. Norris had the better start. He was up there and closer. And... Piastri didn't throw it away. He hung onto it and he deserved his podium. Don't think I'm talking him down here. What he did was fantastic and the effort he put in was great. But when the difference in pace and the difference in race that the two drivers ran, that there was never really this collusion or team game. They prioritised Norris potentially with pit stop order, but that didn't actually come at the detriment to Piastri. So at the end of the day, this was Piastri having a good race. This wasn't him sort of throwing himself under the bus to give Norris the much-needed P2. This was this was just Piastri having a good race. Certainly deserving of a winner's accolade from us because, well done, as a rookie getting on the podium yeah. in a season that has been pretty much dominated by the Red Bulls and a lot of other talent. Credit where it's due, top job. But for me, Norris just had that little bit extra, which I think is worth giving him that sort of that same accolade, if not a bit more. Who was the last rookie to get a podium? Because I, I thought it was maybe Magnussen, but someone said it was six. I did see that it was six years ago and didn't have a chance to check. And I think Magnussen's would have been over six years. I'm just trying to think. Would it have been Max Verstappen, actually? Oh, that would have been 2016, wasn't it, when Verstappen got his still podium? Still and he, was, he wasn't a rookie that year, though, was he? Um, 
2016. No, 2016, Max Verstappen was in his second year in the sport, wasn't he? He joined in 2015. He joined Toro Rosso in 2015. Um, Let's see. Driver changes 2015. Um, mm, mm, mm. It would have been six years ago. So when's that? Six years ago is 2017. So someone in 2017. If it was six years ago. Uh, Let's have a look at podium finishers. Lance Stroll? When did he start in Formula One? Please tell me it wasn't 2017. Holy hell, it was Lance Stroll. What's that? Canada? No. Azerbaijan? Uh, it was Azerbaijan. Yeah, retirement, retirement, retirement. 11th, 16th, 15th, 9th, 3rd in Azerbaijan in 2017. Because, yeah. Yeah. 2018... Um, who scored podiums in 2018? Perez wasn't a rookie in 2018. Oh, no one down there was. Why do I feel like Alex Albon scored a podium in his rookie year? Or he, he would have been Toro Rosso, wouldn't he? Toro Rosso then straight into Red Bull, but I don't think he did in that closing time spent in the Red Bull, though, did no. he? No. No. One in 2020. Which was. 2019, yeah, he never scored a podium that when he when he sort of swapped teams, did he? So, oh, that's mad then. That Lance Stroll was the last rookie to score a podium. Jeez, Louise, man. <laughs> 2020, the only rookie was Nicholas Latifi, technically Jack Aiken and Pietro Fittipaldi, none of whom were anywhere close to scoring a podium in 2021 was only Mazepin again nowhere close to scoring a podium boy vey um well there we go Lance Stroll a man who we must have spent a good 10 minutes decimating the career of was the last rookie to score a podium but now it was Oscar Piastri so that's fine um I've given my thoughts as to why Lando Norris deserves his winner's accolade I think he had a masterful drive really and was able to just sort of secure himself that P2 early on and drove a really really senior and needed drive to the finish and just sort of went bang second there is no way in hell I'm catching Verstappen so what I'm going to do is just not burn up my tires on a high deg circuit I'm going to race competitively stay ahead the rest of the field and come home second had not been for Verstappen we would have called Norris's win of nearly eight seconds ahead of his teammate a decisive victory so yeah. yeah and he said he lost about 10 seconds when uh there's a virtual safety car and Perez was in front of him uh going into the pits with damage and he didn't know whether he could overtake Perez or not so he actually lost a lot of time in that as well yeah, Perez caused a lot of interesting moments this weekend because at one point, um, Shell thought he was unlapping himself when he passed Perez, but thinking it was Verstappen. <laughs> but it turns out it was just Perez going slowly into the pits to retire for possibly a second time. Um, yeah. So anyway, speaking of the Red Bulls, your winner. Mine is Max Verstappen. I mean, he's essentially single-handedly won constructors for Red Bull, but in terms of this race specifically... He was able to quickly bat away any rumours about Red Bull suffering with their performance in Singapore due to regulation changes. 
um, in free practice. And for me, his qualifying lap was the best lap we've seen all season. He extracted everything he could out of that car, but without ever going over the limit to get the only sub minute 28. If you go back and watch the replay, it's such a beautiful lap. And then in the race, didn't put a foot wrong. He went back to being his dominant Max Verstappen ways. Yeah, um, I agree with you on all those points. I'll start with his qualifying lap, which was truly phenomenal. Like the fact that he also got out of the car, didn't even look like he'd been trying, but had driven to such a level with such precision is truly remarkable and a testament to his talent and his ability to just click with that car and focus in on the track and get the lap done. And the fact that afterwards he goes, told you there was a 128 in it. And you're sort of going, you you sort of found like three quarters of a second out of nowhere. How? That's amazing. Um, I can't quite remember what, corner it was whether it was something like 130 or whether it was a hairpin or something but they in Q1 were on board with Liam Lawson who pulled I think about 3.7 um, G Max Verstappen pulled five and a half around that um, I think it's no it's the two right handers I believe of um, they've got names they're the Degner curves I think it's the right hander oh, yeah, the right handers there I think it's the first right hander which you sort of just tip it into and then break for turn nine so it's Degner curve I think it could have been that one or possibly spoon where they just go how is he just extracting that performance because that's unreal um, yeah just phenomenal pace all the way through the weekend and yeah like you said when it comes to constructors championship this weekend we did crown red bull as the constructors champions but even if you just counted verstappen's points he's on 400 that's still 95 points clear of mercedes behind him so it's pretty sooner could they have done this if it wasn't for perez so much sooner. Yeah, like this year was a record for how soon a Constructors' Championship has been wrapped up. Imagine if they had a driver in that number two seat that wasn't torpedoing the Williams. I want to work it out. So there was a consistent one-two. How early would they have got it? I'll, I'll try and... I don't know I'll work it out. I'll, I'll, I'll probably do some tippity tapping away tomorrow as well, although I'm in the office, so I might not get to. But we'll we'll try and figure out ahead of the Qatar preview and figure out how soon it's theoretically possible. Because you've basically got to see how many points there are left in the season versus how many are accrued. When you get past that tipping point, knowing that the best another team can score is essentially a 3-4, theoretically, at what point the gap becomes too big. There is a way of doing it. We'll figure it out and we'll come back to you with our come our Qatar preview in about a week's time. Um, right. That's your winner. Uh, we'll move into spinners. And again, we'll start with he who is not present. And I think it's quite an obvious one. It is, but I can't get my phone to take... It, oh, your cat sat on it. It's Sergio Perez. 
I've got a really angry cat and I'm really scared to get my phone. Can you see her every now and again her tail just flapping? I can see the, the tail flapping. She seemed quite happy when she arrived, but she now seems less happy. Oh, God. You it's Sergio that? Perez. and I think I can predict exactly why, uh, why Timo picked Perez. And it's because, well, frankly, another shocking performance from the Mexican in um, the second Red Bull seat not really a drive becoming of someone in that seat and uh, ah, she's got it what did he say was, was my prediction close driving like a wackadoodle you, you'd think he wants Red Bull to fire him and on their constructors title ceiling weekend too don't know what's been wrong with him since the start of Singapore I mean he is that girly that does nothing in the group project and still puts their name on it at the end <laughs> Yeah, his name will go down in like history, in the history books that yeah, Red Bull got that constructor and he was the driver there. But yeah, he, he, didn't, he, he didn't. will be part of that one. But he was present, but not correct, as it were. Uh, it's such an interesting one. Um, I, we've definitely spoken about Perez at length already, and um, I think it's. It's really begging some questions of what's gone wrong since the start of Singapore, because it's clearly not a car issue. The fact that Verstappen was able to turn it around so significantly from Singapore and produce the quality of drive he did across the Japanese Grand Prix weekend. There is now something fundamentally wrong with the way Perez is driving. And he's probably glad he's got a contract signed for next year. But beyond that, it's a lot of questions that are going to be asked of him moving forwards. And mm. he's making mistakes that not even the rookies are doing. No. When you're looking at Liam Lawson and thinking, oh, come on, buddy, we could have just stuck Liam in this seat and have better results. Like, I reckon you could have probably put Liam into that Red Bull and got him P5 off the, off the bat. Like, he would have been a smarter swap. Yeah. Sonoda would have been a top 10 finish for certain. Lawson, I reckon, would have been able to get it top five. What is annoying now is... Because who has been Red Bull... Who have they put in free practices as their rookie testing? Uh, 2023 FP1 driver... Let's see, let's see, let's see. Red Bull um, hasn't done any this year yet. Obviously, AlphaTauri have now ticked off one of their seats with Lawson being in one in um, Monza. That would have counted as one of their FP1 drives, weirdly. Um, but annoyingly, he's now done too much, hasn't he? To be yeah. playing a Red Bull and be classified as a rookie. So yeah, he's now done two see. race weekends, so he's no longer a rookie. So what they'll have to do is they'll have to get an Ayumu Wasa and put him in Sonoda's seat for an FP1. And then they can stick Iwasa in both of the Red Bull seats at remaining race weekends. Or indeed, their other F2 drivers. Yeah, they have said that um, they might put Jake Dennison, uh, former champion with Andretti. Um, but he's also their development driver, or yeah. test driver, development driver, I think, maybe and test, but he does a lot of work for Red Bull anyway. Um, 
So I'd quite like to see him in, in a seat, you know. But it's just a thing that we can't have Lawson in one and see how well he does in that Red Bull now. Mm. I mean, you could, but it wouldn't count for anything. It would. Yeah, yeah, 2018, Jake Dennis was the simulator and development driver for Red Bull Racing. As a result of the team's association with Aston Martin, he tested for them in Barcelona mid-season test in 2018, then again in Hungaroring in August. As of 2023, Dennis remains a development driver for Red Bull. So it would be interesting to see him have a go in certainly one of the Red Bulls, maybe in Alpha Tauri, and see what he does. So, you know, when you said Lola never stares down the camera at you, she is glaring at me right now. Like, I might have to include like a, a clip of this in like the corner of the video version of this because that is that is an angry looking cat for no apparent reason. Um, she is smushing her tail as well, she's angry. Lola, Lola. Oh, there we go. That's a stare. What's wrong, girl? Lola. This is an unhappy cat. She's not happy with us slating Sergio Perez. That seems to be the problem. Um, so we'll move on to your spinner. I've gone for battery for chats. I mean, I don't think was Japan even worth its time? I mean, it's the worst ever quality position he's ever had in Japan. The poor guy fell off his bike before the race even started. He got sandwiched at the start of the race between Ocon and Albon, causing a puncture and wing damage. Uh, and then on lap five, got span around at the hairpin by Logan Sargent, who locked up and tagged him. I mean, he then pitted for the mechanics to examine the situation and change to hard tyres, which almost lasted as long as his Monaco 2021 pit stop. Went back out. The team realised there was too much damage, retired the car. Uh, yeah, it's just not a weekend to be Valtteri Bottas. He seems to take it in, in his stride, though. Like, he doesn't seem peeved about it. No. He's just he's just happy to still be racing and doing what he wants to do and enjoying stuff, which is fair enough. Because um, none of what happened was really his fault. So... I, I think that's quite fair to just sort of be upset about things outside of your control and go, oh, well. Um, yeah. Speaking of things outside of your control, or rather things that were totally within your control, move on to my spinners, where I've got um, Logan Sargent and Lance Stroll. And we've already spoken about Lance Stroll at great length. Um, I think that possibly he, there is something in the back of my mind and something I discussed with Georgia over the weekend was whether he retired because he simply just didn't want to be out there, man. He just gave up mid-race and retired. And if he did that and had the balls to do that, all the more to him for doing that. That's really quite impressive. But for Logan Sargent, when your career is on the line, when Williams have not confirmed you as a driver for next year, when Liam Lawson is doing all that he can in that Toro Rosso, and it's not unheard of for out for Towery Red Bull to just sort of push drivers into another team just for a little bit and they retain their Red Bull sponsorship Alex Albon um, I wouldn't be unsurprised if maybe Red Bull had a quick word with Williams as to whether or not they'd want to take Lawson on for a season equally 
Drogovic is supposed to be in talks with Williams at the moment as well. And given the way he very quickly got to grips with the Aston Martin in pre-season testing at the start of this year, his ability to get to grips with the Formula One car and develop a bit is worthwhile. They've still got the safe pair of hands in Alex Albon next to him. So why is she staring at me like that? It's creepy, man. Your that was Oh my god. I could never sleep over at your house because I'd wake up and she'd just be staring at you from the corner of a room or something. Kind of terrifying. Um, it's also put me off where I was going with my point. Um, the fact is that Logan has now got plenty of competition for his seat. And crucially, when you compare him to his predecessor, there was no one in the market who wanted to move to that Williams. And so there was no one to replace Latifi. So Latifi stuck around in that seat for far longer than anyone really anticipated because there wasn't any juniors desperate enough to move up. Williams got desperate and pulled Logan Sargent up. And now we're awash with drivers and Williams isn't half bad. Should they be looking elsewhere beyond Logan for their next driver? Um, Timo has said... Logan deserves another year, even if it's just to show the other Williams drivers in the academy that the team won't bin you off immediately. That being said, wouldn't mind Lawson and Alvin being there for 2024. That's kind of my sentiments as well. I, I would, I did want to give him another year, but with the talent we're leaving on the sidelines like Lawson, I think they deserve a bit more. Um, or they've shown that they, I think, have more talent than Sergeant, unfortunately. So they deserve that seat, I think, a little bit more. Yeah, I think ultimately, does he deserve a bit longer to get used to the car? Yes. However, if you're Williams and your car is getting good and you're able to score points on a relatively consistent basis... Surely you want two drivers that are able to also score points on a relatively consistent basis. So at that point, you're certainly going to be looking at other places to go, oh, maybe we should, maybe we should look at these other options and go for something else because it's a car that can do it. And Albon's proved it, proved that it's a quick car and it's capable of getting into the top 10 at circuits where it's excelling. Show you what both drivers are that are able to do that. It is a tricky predicament that that they're in, definitely. Um, I'm not sure if this has ever happened before, but all our spinners are quite literally spinners. They've either span or caused a spin. Yeah. Speaking of spins, did you notice when Kevin Magnussen did that really nice little kick spin on the clutch to rejoin the circuit? after being punted by Perez, the um, the artificial environment that's mapped onto the inside of the hairpin didn't quite keep up. And it clipped very briefly over the airbox of his car. Because the hairpin they have, I think it's a Heineken sponsorship that's on the inside of the corner. Um, it's artificially mapped onto the grass there. But as his car came round, it obviously overlaid over it, but the computer didn't recognise it quick enough. So there's this brief moment where the grass somehow is laid on top of Magnuson's car. It's a weird camera angle. It's one of those weird moments where you go, hmm, the computer did not do its job quite as well as I wanted it to. And the same as when you sometimes, some of the camera shots from Monza at Curva Ascari, 
um, no, it's not Ascari anymore, is it? What's Alvaretto, Curva Alvaretto, the one that everyone still calls um, Parabolica. On the outside of um, Curva Alvaretto, there is a really big floor mural of Michele Alvaretto in a Ferrari. But when you watch it on the Sky feed and the F1 live feed, that is replaced with, I think it's MSC Cruises sponsorship. And go back and watch it on different highlights and look at it from different sort of coverages and it changes to what you see on that corner. And they're not painting over it in real life because F1's coming. No, they simply map it on. You also noticed it if you watch the camera angle as drivers come out of 110R, L130R down towards the chicane. There are the braking marker bollards and then to the right of them again are DHL bollards. And it takes a second sometimes for the DHL sponsorship to appear on the bollards. So you sort of see it render up in real time as the cars come past. You're sort of like, hey, which is just one of those interesting points about F1 sponsorship being not real. Um, we'll move to other drivers worth of mention and uh, we'll go for Carlos Sainz is one that I've jotted down because it was another methodical and straightforward weekend for him. His ability to see what Mercedes were doing as a team with a brace of drivers ahead of him and the fact that they were pulling his trick from Singapore on him and then working to apply pressure against Mercedes to sort of force them to counter it differently was really quite remarkable. His ability to look at what's going on with two cars ahead of him understand the strategy a team was put together and go, well, if I just do this, that won't work for them and they'll have to do something different. Being able to do that is really quite impressive. And equally doing that on a weekend where against the McLarens and Max in the Red Bull, the Ferrari was arguably the third fastest car on track and Leclerc very much proved that. But he had the favourable strategy. This was weekend was Sainz's turn to get sacrificed and he did play the team game admirably and still put up a huge fight against sort of Mercedes on his own. So that's quite good going from him, I think. Maybe that's why his hair's so big. Just full of thoughts. Full of brain. His brain overflows from his head into his hair. That's why it's so voluminous. Um, Maybe it's like transmitting sort of information from other teams. That's why it's so voluminous. It's big because it's just a radar antenna to pick up the other radio yeah. calls. That's what it is. Um, my other sort of, or other drivers worth mentioning, I think, again, has to go to Liam Lawson. It was so close to the points, P11, and he was, he wasn't upset about it, but he knew there was a little bit more to come this weekend, but he was happier with his start. He said that he was absolutely amped up on coffee beforehand. So his, Reactions were like that, getting off the line, boom. Um, and he does continue to be a headache for Red Bull, who promised him that drive for 2025. Um, we've already mentioned sort of the question I've asked here, which was, why does he wait that long? If um, they don't get Dragovic, would Williams be wise to buy Lawson out of his contract? I think we've, we've answered that, yeah, Williams would be, because he'd be able to probably get those points on the weekends where the Williams can get points. So now we'll dive... Williams essentially then will just become a third team for Red Bull and their driver pool. Yeah, which would save them a headache when it comes to getting hold of funds because their drivers are sort of being paid by someone else. So all of a sudden, they've got a bit of cash that's freed up, possibly. Um, anyway, we'll look at our predictions. Um, when it comes to poll predictions, both you and Timo got things correct, both with Verstappen for poll. I was a little optimistic with Norris. I was close, though. Um, I was equally <laughs> close when it came to the podium, where I predicted it was going to be a Norris Piastri. Um, unfortunately, I predicted Norris win Piastri second, so they bumped them down one. I'm correct. Um, but you, meanwhile, scored three points. 
your podium of Verstappen, Norris and Piastri in that order. So very well done there. Um, mm-hmm. Timo got a sole point for Norris P2, which means that this is now the second week in a row that Norris has got P2. Congrats to Norris. Um, I got nothing for mine. Um, zero points for fastest lap across the board. Noel was correct there. You get a point for double Alpine points. And I'm awarding myself a point for a double Red Bull DNF because I never said it had to be both cars retiring. I, I was it, looking at that, wondering whether you would or not. At this point, it doesn't really matter. I'm so far behind in the standings <laughs> when it comes to predictions. But it's like, it's one of those things where, like the FIA, we haven't taken into account that that might have been an option. I never said both Max and Checo retire. I just <laughs> said there'd be two retirements for Red Bull, which does have which happened. They retired Checo twice. That counts, right? So, yeah, essentially this weekend, it's been maximum points for you. All you've got to do now is predict a fastest lap correctly and get repeat that entire act, and you're, you're there. I'm so annoyed with Verstappen, because Hamilton did have it. Yeah. And so at one point, I, I was going to get them all. But, I mean, I've got to get one wrong. Otherwise, if it was, you know... 100 years back I might have been burnt at the stake yeah we'll get too close to thinking you're a witch um anyway we'll move from our predictions into the f1 fantasy review which Timo has thankfully written up so I'm not trying to do this on the fly and for Japan Alex H9 scored 298 points the highest score from this weekend Francisco Rhodes 1 scored 292 points and you came home third with 290 points which is quite impressive um I haven't asked you you did very well. I haven't had a look back to see how anything else panned out. I can't remember how well I might have done. I think I've got a team that's got Verstappen, Piastri and Norris on it. Um, on the curbs, came home P9 with 211 points. And one of my teams, Jaffa Cake Racing, came home P14 with 188. I'm going to have to have a look and see where I came home. I can't I can't sit here and possibly let the fact that I might have come home higher than P14 go and miss. I think I'm typing the wrong password there. There are. We're in. My team completed. No, that was my highest scoring team. What the hell happened there? No. Oh, I had mid beds. Uh, this was Jaff. No, Jaffa Cake Racing was my highest scoring team. Verstappen, Ooh. Russell, Alonso, Piastri, McLaren, but then I also had Aston Martin and Perez. Mm-hmm. I ditched Aston Martin for McLaren. Mm, I might have to look at doing that. Mid-Beds Racing was Verstappen, Alonso, Lawson, Albon, Sonoda, Red Bull, Ferrari. So not bad, but Albon's retirement really not helping the points haul there. I'll come back towards Qatar and see if I can swap out um, Aston Martin for McLaren. Um, Overall, the top three in the standings are Alex H9V2 on 4,694 points, Francisco Rhodes in 4,660 points in P2, and Alex H9 4,505 points in P3. EMT Racing is in P8 with 4,152 points. Midbeds Racing, probably my highest scoring one. P10 with 3,809 points, and on the curbs, P12, 3,564 points with Experiment Underdog tailing at the bottom, P33, 1,414 points. I think that is correct. Um, But again, out of my own personal curiosity, I'm going to have a look. Undercut Podcast League. I'm 10th, 11th, 30th. Yeah, 
So that's that's correct. Where's my neck like crack? Um, that is a very good question. My neck mic crack <laughs> is P31, uh, 2,369 points, just behind my other, my third team, BRT Yamaha, 2,431. Um, yeah, Experiment Underdog Tales at the very bottom. Please subscribe, um, 1,507 in P32. So it's, it's a big field spread from the nearly 4,700 at the lead to barely 1,400 at the bottom. So... Interesting. The are doing well. Mm. Interesting indeed. But anyway, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode. We'll be back in about a week's time to preview the Qatar Grand Prix, our second time going back to Qatar. And we're going back for a sprint weekend as well, where Max Verstappen could wrap up the championship on Saturday if he plays his cards right. It's it's crazy to think he's won the championship without having to do a full length race yeah like there is there is enough points open to him on a saturday i think all he needs to do is score six more points than perez and that's him with the title so that'll be You'd have to look back at history, see if um, if there are any Saturday racing and see how many drivers have won a championship on a Saturday. Ooh, I don't think there's been any Grand Prix on a Saturday. It's always been Grand Prix Sunday. I don't know. Thinking in the back of in in back in the day, could have could they have done, you know a random one on a Saturday for some reason. 1985 South African Grand Prix was t- took place on a Saturday. Um, so the 1985 South African Grand Prix. Let's see what happened there. 1985 South African Grand Prix. If I remember correctly, 85, the, Grand, the South African Grand Prix was towards the start of the season. Oh no, it was towards the end of the season. Race 15 of 16. Um. Oh, who won 1985? Um, was it was that a PK that year? No, it was a Prost. Well, it was Prost. Um, McLaren Tan. Yeah. Oh, Prost had already won it by a long march. Um. So how early did Prost wrap up the championship that year? Yeah, this was the first year Prost won. Um, Prost dropped to 15th at the start, but finished in fourth, which was enough for him to become world driver's champion for the first time. And that was at the European Grand Prix, which was held at Brands Hatch that year. Annoyingly, the one race before South Africa. Yeah, so he didn't get to say that there was a, a champion crown on the Saturday. So it's completely ruined exactly the reason we delved into all this history and has made a bit of a headache for me when it comes to editing. So no, we haven't had a Formula One world champion crowned on a Saturday before, as far as we can work out from a cursory Google. Um, so this could be a first time, although we'll probably yeah. check that before the, we do the Qatar Grand Prix preview, which will be our next episode. And you can join us then. In the meantime, Ellie May, where can the people find you? 
you can find me over on our podcast Instagram page where I do the graphics or you can find me on our TikTok account. Uh, you can find Timo on Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Panic Sorority, and Instagram. And if you want even more of me, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok is at Jesse on Cars and writing for Classic Car Weekly. So that's all we've got time for on this week's episode. Hopefully, I'll remember to edit out the bit where we get sidetracked looking at the historic Grand Prix in the 1980s. And you can join us again for a preview of the Qatar Grand Prix. <laughs>